This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Hey, really quick before we start the show, the How I Built This book is now a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. So thank you to all of you who ordered it and for your support of this show. If you haven't picked it up and you want to learn the secrets of how to develop an entrepreneurial mindset, How I Built This, the book is for you. It's now available wherever books are sold and in most countries around the world or by visiting howibuiltthis.com or guyraz.com. And thanks. What happened in 94 was the landscape changed. When I started my business, there was maybe 70 or 80 department store chains in the United States. Wow. All of a sudden, 10 years later, there's maybe 15 or 20. Consolidation. After consolidations and some bankruptcies. Yeah. And I said to myself that these guys are going to need to find economies. Hmm. I thought at a certain point, they'd buy similar shoes under their own labels, and I'm not in business anymore. You didn't think that they would just continue to buy Kenneth Cole shoes and sell them? I didn't. And if you don't see my design, it's like a tree in the forest. I'm only as good as you know me to be. Right. And if I'm not out there, then I don't exist. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Kenneth Cole launched his shoe business out of a 40-foot truck in midtown Manhattan and grew the business into one of the best-known brands in the fashion industry. There's a basic principle in business when it comes to politics. Stay away, far away. But the past four years have tested that view, especially because lots of consumers want the brands they support to take a stand on issues they care about, things like racial justice and voting rights and climate action. And it's meant that a lot of big companies have increasingly been doing that, even at the risk of alienating a certain segment of their customer base. But long before it became fashionable to weigh in on controversial topics, the shoe company Kenneth Cole was doing exactly that. In 1986, when the AIDS crisis was just coming into focus, Kenneth Cole began to take out full-page ads in magazines promoting AIDS awareness and research. And this was at a time when many people in America refused to even acknowledge the disease. In that same year, 1986, the company ran a campaign calling for strict gun control. In 1992, for strong abortion rights. In 93, for equal civil rights for members of the LGBTQ community. And throughout all those campaigns, the brand kept growing. In fact, by the mid-2000s, the company's revenue hit over half a billion dollars. Kenneth Cole, the company's namesake, started out with very little money, but he managed to turn the brand into one of the best-known American fashion labels. Kenneth was born in Brooklyn in the 1950s. His dad was in the shoe business, but following in those footsteps was not part of Kenneth's plan. Instead, 
I was going to be the shortstop for the New York Mets. Were you really? Yes. And, and <laughs> like, then, and then like I, most of the kids in your neighborhood probably, right? And then I'd wake up every other day, once a day, and I realized <laughs> that was not likely to happen. Yeah. Actually, I don't. My first job was selling peanuts at Shea Stadium. I don't know if you know that. Wow. It was also a creative endeavor getting that job because it was during the World Series in 1969. Yeah. The Miracle Mets. Yeah. And there were no lights, so there were no night games. And right. they needed kids to work during the day. And the city was very tough, so they insisted that the students all had notes from their principals that they could take that time off from school. So I got my principal to give me a note saying that he thought it was a worthwhile cultural experience, and he, wow. he endorsed my employment at Chase Stadium. So you got to see the Mets play in the 1969 World Series? I did. And I also, by the way, I leveraged that job to get one at Madison Square Garden where I got to see the the Nick and Ranger games. And tell me a little bit about your parents. First of all, what what did your parents do for a living? Did they both work? No, my mother for a little bit did some charity work. My father was, um, was an entrepreneur. He was in different businesses. He was, later on, he was in the shoe business. He had a small shoe factory in a very tough part of New York at the time called Williamsburg. A tough part of New York called Williamsburg. Wow. Yeah. It's Not so tough today. Interesting how things have changed. Yeah. And and what was the name of the factory? El Greco. Does that mean the Greek? It means the Greek in Spanish. Yeah. And what was that name? Where did that come from? I don't I think he had acquired a small business and I think that's what it was and eventually he he assumed it. So he made shoes and sold them in department stores at the time. Women's shoes. But the last thing on my mind was the last thing I would have imagined myself doing and the least masculine thing I could have imagined myself doing was going to the women's shoe business. So it wasn't something I ever contemplated. What was your relationship like with your dad? It was good. He was a, he was a tough guy. He was a, a Marine. World War II veteran? World War II veteran. And was he deployed overseas? He was. He served in the Philippines. He was a, a, wow. gu- a gunner. Wow. And it was on several missions. And um, he was relentless. He was very determined. I learned a lot from him in many ways, what to do and in some cases what not to do. <laughs> he was always, he was working much more than he wasn't. Um, and, and I always often reflect upon that being generational because I made a point to be the opposite with, with my kids to the degree I was able to. But work came first and second, and uh, we were often third. But he was focused, he was determined and he was uh he was relentless so when you set out to go to college in in the early 70s you went to emory um i I take it uh, like you didn't really contemplate eventually working with your dad no truthfully i I went to school thinking i'd probably become a lawyer and i studied political science Hmm. and law was something i believed would create interesting alternatives for me going down the road. So I was admitted to a couple of law schools. I did apply. And then that summer, my father had his superintendent, who was running the factory at the time, resigned to go into competitions. And that factory was the proverbial hand that fed us. So I felt an obligation that summer to immerse myself in it and to learn the business to the degree that I could. What your dad said to you, he said, I need you to help me out at the factory. He didn't say that. He was too proud. But my mother Hmm. kind of encouraged it, and he welcomed it. 
And I wasn't thinking that this would be something I would jump in with both feet. But I knew, once I started doing it, I also knew that I needed to commit to it, to, to learn it, and to quickly have the respect of, of the people I was working with. And, and I did. I learned it. And I kept, I was fascinated by it, and I kept gravitating towards the sample room where, where I watched all these huh. components, this piece of leather and plastic that was the heel or wood, and then a metal um, shape of a foot that became was the last, and how all these things put together in a certain way became a shoe. And how, how, how was it that your whole life you were around this world and exposed to it, and then, because I, I agree, I would find it fascinating to just see the pieces of cut leather and the wooden heel and people sewing the pieces together, but why do you think you, you began to see it that way at the age of 22? I think I wanted to understand not just what my father did, but what was behind the curtain and, and yeah. how, how did this work and what made it so distinctive and why was he able to do it differently than other people. And so I was, and I realized very quickly that what distinguished what he did from what everybody else did was what happened in the sample room. So that's where I, I spent much of my summer that year and I learned how to make patterns and how shoes were constructed and how they were crafted. And by the way, I just think of this as, as a dad myself. Like if my kid, join my business, which I don't want them to. I want them to do their own thing, but I would be so proud. It would just be, I'd be like just gushing, you know, it'd be amazing. Was your dad, it that doesn't strike me that your dad was that kind of guy, but he must have been pretty proud that his kid was there in his company. No, he, I, he was, but he, you know, he pushed me as hard as he felt he could in, in the way that he would. Well, how would he and push you? It, it, it was always how big is big and how good is good and um he was mm. careful with the compliments and the uh encouragements but i but i know he was proud and i and um i learned how to make shoes in his factory for our company um in that six-year period where you worked for your dad's business um and really start to understand the business like two years in you were involved in launching a whole new line of shoes. I think they're called candies, designed to sort of targeting young women. What was that initiative? How'd that come about? So we were making shoes in, in, in Brooklyn, and, and I, there were a hundred steps that went into making the most simple shoe. And hmm. the slightest thing that would go wrong, if you're missing any of those hundred plus components, we're not in business anymore. Hmm. And in the best case scenario, you can only make so many pair of shoes in the worst case, you're out of business. You have nothing. So, so that mo business model I struggled with, and then we went over to Europe and bought some shoes and started selling them here in the United States. What was it? it was a yeah. What did it was it like a Mary Jane? Like it was a piece of leather that was stapled onto a polypropylene bottom with a high heel, and it was a what Olivia Newton-John wore in the movie Grease. Oh yeah. And what you identified, though, like you, you found those shoes in Europe and you said, hey, we should sell shoes like these? Actually, I think my father and I found them. And okay. then we came back and I started to sell them. And, and, um, but you weren't making them. You were, you were still importing these shoes. We started importing them. And then it became very right. clear that in that sort of a business model, if you do a lot of business, you, you make a ton of money. If you do a little bit, you make less. But you don't have all the overhead that we had in a, in a domestic shoe factory. And it was very compelling. So, so we converted the business eventually to that. That became the business because it grew very quickly. So he shut down the factory part. He did. And focused on importing shoes and then reselling them. Correct. 
When did that happen? Would you remember what year? So if I joined the business 76, maybe 79, 80. So this was the new model, and you were now focused on importing shoes that you could identify, mainly from Europe, I guess. And it actually boosted the business? It, the business grew as a result of that? Exponentially and very quickly. Huh. So it ne- eventually, initially the factory became a warehouse, the existing factory, and then eventually we moved to a, a, a bigger facility and then left and vacated um, those offices in Williamsburg. So clearly you catch the bug, the shoe bug. Right. After six years of working with your dad, this becomes something not just interesting, but you see this as your future. You decide to leave in 1982 to start your own shoe company. I guess you're around 28 years old at the time. Why did you decide to leave your dad's business and go off on your own? He and I didn't, didn't agree on a lot of things. And I didn't have the, the right to not be 100% compliant and supportive. Yeah. And I felt that I was young enough and probably naive enough that I could just go and do it and figure it out independently. So I woke up one day and decided that's what I'm going to do. Did you and your dad argue a lot? Or was it more that your dad was my way or the highway and you didn't argue with him? I would argue, but invariably he had his way that he felt things should be done. And and I'd say to myself, why am I putting him through this and why am I putting this through it? So... (laughs) Then at a certain point, I figured my relationship is only going to get better with him if I, if I do this independently. So when you told your dad you want to start your own thing uh, and you're leaving, was he, was he sad? Was he hurt? Was he supportive? He was too proud to be visibly hurt anyway. And he wasn't supportive, but he at the same time he, he was supportive, but he wasn't encouraging. Maybe that's a better way to put it. And when I did tell him I was going to leave one day, which was shocking to him, he had said, you'll be back. It's very hard out there, and you're going to be back, was <laughs> his message, at which point I knew there was no way that was going to happen. So he says, I'm going to leave your office open for you because I know you'll, you'll be back. So when you said, hey, I want to start my own shoe thing, he didn't say, hell, I'll, I'll, I'll write you a check to, to help get you started. No, not just the opposite. And I'm not sure I would, I'm not sure I would have taken it if, if he had wow. either, because I, I became equally proud. So you, you wanted to start your own shoe company. Obviously, you had experience now and con- some connections to, to, to factories. But how did you have, did you have any money to start it? Very little. But what I did was... I went over to Italy because that's where I had been working with candies. And and I found an agent who had a lot of credibility in the marketplace. And that agent, by nature of my relationship with that agent, I had probably more credibility than I was entitled to in the marketplace. This is an agent who helped you find factories factories to make your shoes. Yeah. And everything was, I, I created everything at the time to be variable. And so the agent would get paid only if I did business and to the degree of mm-hmm. business, they would make more. And through this agent, I, I got open account, which was a big deal. Like a line of credit? A line of credit. And, and I, I learned very early on in my career that it's much easier to get credit from a factory that needs business in Italy than from an American bank that doesn't. So you go to the factory and you could say, hey, I need to make this order and I'll pay you 90 days or something like that. Yeah, and I had an arrangement with the bank where they were going to give me 80% of the receivable once I invoiced it. So 
I would fly the goods to New York and we'd ship them out because we had pre-sold them. And who did you, by the way, who did you sell them to? The same places that you were selling candies to, the same department stores? Actually, more elevated. Huh. My first year in business, I sold Saks, I sold Macy's, I sold Bloomingdale's, I sold uh, Bergdorf's, I think. You wanted this to be different than your dad's business. You wanted to make like higher-end shoes that you would actually design yourself. I wanted to create aspirational shoes for for that aspirational woman. Hmm. And, um, and I also did not want to compete with him. Hmm. And I called a handful of customers that his current salesmen were not calling on. And then my father said, okay, take them to Footwear News, which was the only industry publication at the time. And I did that as well. And I, I met with this woman, Vivian Infantino, who was the fashion editor. And Vivian wrote a story about these first few shoes that I ever made. And she said, by this, a new up-and-coming designer, Kenneth Cole. Hmm. And I never looked at myself as that. As a designer. As a designer. I, was, huh. I created a little package of shoes I thought we could sell. Yeah. I didn't even have to draw yet. I've taught myself how to draw over the years. Uh, but I, at that point, I didn't. Did you ever think of yourself as a creative person in, when you were younger? I think I, I had a, an interest in things that were creative, but I wasn't, I never really looked in the mirror and saw that in me. You wouldn't look in the mirror and say, hey, I'm a designer, I'm an artist. It wasn't something that I had ever aspired to. Hmm. So you have this, um, you're designing shoes. And by the way, you have a co-founder, a guy named Sam Edelman. But tell me about Sam. Sam worked with me at, at El Greco. And when I left, Sam said, if you leave, I'm going with you because I'm not staying here. So <laughs> I was, as much as I had, I, I knew how great, how, because Sam was also a good friend, I had, and how much fun it would be and how, how great it would be to have him. I, I was reluctant to do it to my father because I didn't want him to think that I took anybody or anything. So eventually when Sam made it clear he wasn't staying, Sam joined me. And then we worked in my apartment on the east side, I don't know, for like a, Several months. I I don't think we went outside except when I went to Italy to uh, make the make the shoes. I took a couple of trips. You worked in your apartment building the, like creating the business plan. We were creating, you know, the brand. We're setting up people to connect with. I guess when I got to Italy, lawyers finding a lawyer, finding an accountant. And how? By the way, how many shoes? How many different designs were going to be in the first collection? Because this is going to be women's shoes only. And how many different? I guess skews what you have. So maybe three constructions and each in maybe three or four or five colors. Right. How many shoes did you, in total, did you need to make? So going into this process, I didn't have a sense of how many. I just knew that I could only show what I thought was great. I just wanted to create shoes that people wanted and hopefully have less than what the demand was, but enough to make it all come together. Well, the, the 1982 version of Kenneth Cole is not inspiring a lot of confidence in me right now. <laughs> so, but I, but I was, but I, but I knew I'd figure it out. You know, people said to me when I left my father, um, guy, they said to me, "Well, what would you have done if it didn't work?" And what I don't tell people, and I didn't tell people often, is that I didn't know what it was. I, I knew I'd figure it out along the way, and that it might keep changing. I wasn't sure what kinds of shoes, and I wasn't sure who I was going to sell them to. And I wasn't sure what the price would be, but I knew somehow I would find product that people would want and I would deliver it in a way that people would find compelling. Hmm. 
Tell me about about the name, Kenneth Cole. I mean, it's a great name. It's your name. Was that, was that the idea from the beginning, to call it Kenneth Cole? No, I couldn't take the chance of, of a made-up name and finding out many, many months or years later whether it was acceptable or not through the trademark process. We didn't right. have Google in those days. But I also knew you can usually get away with your own name as long as it's your name. So I called it Kenneth Cole, and I knew it would probably make my mother happy. So I did that. Then I ran to Italy because I didn't have credit, and I figured I'd get credit from a, from a shoe factory, and I did. So I fa- had a factory that agreed to do this. The factory was a, a single production line, and then when the production line stopped at 6 o'clock when the workers went home is when Kaiser, who was the modalist who I worked with, and I would work all night long on the collections. So once, once the workers would go home, then you would basically rent out the factory for your line. Yeah, I mean, they because he had a relationship to the factory, they let him have it and use it. And uh, he felt bad for this kid from New York who was desperate to have a collection within 30 days because we were getting close to market. Sorry, just to clarify, you had to, you had to have this collection done in 30 days. I did because, first of all, I knew that I needed to get to market quickly because I was going to run out of money if I didn't. And at the time, I think 60-plus percent of businesses, probably even more today, startup businesses fail in the first year because people underestimate the amount of time it takes before there's a return on that investment. So I knew I needed to get to market quickly, and I knew that in December something there was going to be a shoe show, and I needed a collection by then. This was the Market Week shoe show in New York, right? It was Yes, it was Market Week. So you... You know you've got this deadline. You want to preview your line of shoes at Market Week, which is this convention in New York. This is in December of 1982. Yeah. So what's the story? You want to get there, and do you do you meet your deadline? Do you get your shoes done on time for the show? So so I, yeah, I'm doing that. But in the process, I needed to be prepared to show the shoes because at the time there were two choices. It was the room at the Hilton Hotel, not a lot of individuality, not a lot of creativity, plus not without significant cost, because you had to take a room, you had to decorate the room, you needed models. That was what Market Week was? It was a bunch of people with rooms at the Hilton Hotel? Yeah, about 1,100 of them. Okay. 30 floors, 30 some odd companies per floor. And the buyers would just come and they'd walk the floors. They'd go to room, to room, to room. They'd go more likely into the rooms they knew, people they had done business with. Um, And the alternative was a big fancy showroom within a two-block radius of the Hilton Hotel, which clearly I didn't have the money or the time to do that either. So n- neither alternative really worked. And on a whim, I uh, spoke to a person who was in the trucking business. And I asked him, I said, if, if I could figure out how to park your truck on the corner of 6th Avenue and 56th Street on December 2nd, 1982, would you lend it to me? What kind of truck? Like A 40-foot trailer. You asked him to borrow it. F- why? Because I was thinking that if I, maybe I could actually show the shoes in a truck on the corner because oh, everybody okay. was going to be on that corner gotcha. at one point in the process. So you would, so instead of being at the Hilton or in a showroom, you would just have a truck parked there, a 40-foot the truck, that people could go into the container of the truck and see your shoes. Correct. So I asked him, could, would you lend it to me? And he said, you can't park a bicycle in New York for 10 minutes, let alone a truck for three days. But if you could figure out how to do it, not only will I lend it to you, I'll help you decorate it. Hmm. So I called the mayor's office. Yeah. So how does one get permission to park a 40 patrol on the corner of 6th Avenue and 56th Street? And the answer is some they don't. This is New York. We get permission only into two circumstances. If you are a utility company servicing the streets, 
or if you're a production company shooting a full motion picture because we were going through an I Love New York campaign in the early 80s. Right. So that afternoon, we went to a stationery store, changed the company's the letterhead from Kenneth Hall, Inc. to Kenneth Hall Productions, Inc. And then we filed for a permit, sent the letter to the mayor that afternoon, asking for permission to shoot a full-length motion picture called The Birth of a Shoe Company. You, you filed a permit? Filed for a permit, yes. For a permit to shoot a film called The Birth of a Shoe Company. Correct. Okay. <laughs> All right. And we opened for business on December 2nd. And we had two New York policemen as a doorman compliments of the fine mayor. Wait, they gave you the permit? They believed you that you were going to... Did you shoot a film? We did. It never quite got edited, but we did. <laughs> Wait, you had ca- like camera people just, just filming? We had a director. Sometimes it was filming his camera, sometimes there wasn't. Yeah. It was cheaper that way. And um, we had stanchions and Klee lights. Was anybody from the city like permitting office there to confirm that you were a legit film company? Or was it just 1982 and that people were just more trusting back then? They had no reason not to trust it, I guess. Right. I don't think anybody had done this before. And the cops were there like as part of your you know, security detail provided by the city. And they weren't like, hey, are you guys making a movie? I guess they wouldn't no. have asked that question. No, they weren't. But you know what did happen, though? We had a union guy came by after our first day of shooting. <laughs> to make sure that this was a union right, crew. A, a union right. job, right. And we told him we weren't really shooting. So he didn't buy that. So I just needed more security that night. And they didn't bother us. I guess eventually he just accepted that this was not a union job and that he wasn't going to be a beneficiary at some level. This was not a even a film production. Oh, uh, no, it was. It okay. was. Some of the footage is actually on our website. If you oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. Got gotcha. you. Uh, but so, so there was some filming going on, but really this was kind of a, it was a stunt to get people to come to your trailer to see your shoes. And by the way, how did they know to come there? Did you like paint Kenneth Cole Productions on the side? We did. There was a banner outside of the truck. And I would stand there and Sam would stand there and we would kind of you know, wave to people, and then we saw every buyer in New York. And after the first few days, people, it became apparent, people heard about it. And then there was a, by the way, there's a phone booth on that corner. So I had committed to the factory to buy 40,000 pair of shoes. But I refused to commit to which, specifically which ones. But I told them I would let them know as the show was happening. So, you know, I'd give a little more red, a little more in the lower heel, a less of the blue, more of the red. So I was calling from the phone booth. I had lots of quarters in my pocket. Hmm. And changing and adjusting the supply chain as we were selling the shoes. Hmm. We get delivery in four to six weeks, which was unheard of, but we committed to do this. And I air freighted, flew everything in. How many shoes, by the way, did you sell at the show? I sold maybe 40,000 pair at the show. Wow. So you could call these factories from just the corner of, what was the street? 6th and 56th. 6th and 56th in, in Manhattan and say, hey, yeah, we need we need those shoes. We need 20,000. We need 30,000, whatever it was. Well, no, I had already committed to the numbers. I was just adjusting right. them. And, and I was you know, aspiring and believing and dreaming that I could sell all these shoes. Right. And we did. We sold all of the shoes. After that show, was there buzz about Kenneth Cole, this hot young designer? Or not quite yet? I think there was, invariably, if people wanted 10 pair, we'd only let them agree to sell them eight. And the more we said no, the more they wanted it. 
and um, we got a lot of good editorial. So um, Bloomingdale's gave gave me my own shoe department on the main floor. What, in 1983? In 83. Wow. A little niche department. which was With your big, name on the wall and everything? With, with my name on the wall. Did your dad see that? He did. He was very proud. And he came to the truck, to the trailer, and, and saw it. And... You know, we, we lost him a couple of years after that, unfortunately. He didn't really get to see how the business evolved over the years. But um, he was very proud. Hmm. What was so different about the shoes you were making at the time? Why were they so hot? Well, they were different. And, and street fashion was really start, just starting to happen at that point in time. You know, fashion up until that point had emanated from the runways of Milan and Paris. But now it, it, was, all, it was coming from the streets. And it was coming from people like Calvin... Calvin Klein, yeah. Calvin Klein, and I think Donna came up Donna Karen. a little bit after that. But that was about the time, the rise of the New York designers and mm. American designers became a uh, credible pursuit. And people were, they liked the shoes. People would, they bought them, and I had them flown in from Italy, and I would then turn around and ship them before I had to pay for them. And wow. then I got paid before I had to pay the factories, so I had positive cash flow, like, three months into business. But, I mean, the actual design of the shoes, was it the price point or was it the design? What what was it that, I mean, did they look very different from other things in the market at the time? They were very different from other things in the market. They were. They had a very distinctive look, a very high heel pointy toe pump, and then also a flat pump. And then a, what we, it was a convertible boot that had the ability to become, you could wear it at any height, and it was made in canvas. Wow. And in the early 80s, denim was, you know, it became a big oh, fashion yeah. statement at about that Even time. in shoes? Well, but denim-friendly footwear. Okay. Some of the shoes were made in stonewashed canvas, which looked like denim. Uh-huh. And then some of them were in, in stonewashed suede, which also kind of looked like what how people were dressing at the time. And I think people just, they liked it because it was new and different. But... It was we were going through interestingly a downturn in the economy in the eighties. Yeah, uh, eighty two was 80s. a was a was a slowdown. It, yeah. it was a recession. So yeah. and, and then in tough times, I've always said are the greatest opportunities because people, you know, when things are good, people want to just do what they're doing and do more of it. And it's only when things are difficult that they that they looking to kind of re um, reinvent and uh, reengage. So you know, in tough times, the shoes were different. There was nothing like them in the marketplace. Hmm. And people were intrigued, and everybody felt they should have some. So we got off to a really great start. So where were you getting your ideas from? I often would go out at night. These are also the Studio 54 days. So I would go to the nightclubs, and I would kind of get a drink, and I'd sit in a lit corner, and I'd see what people would wear when they were trying to look their best for whoever it was they were trying to dress for. And I learned also that what are they wearing, but what do they wish they could be wearing? And, you know, people have to choose from what the universe would exist. So I had to be aware of what existed in the market, not so that I could make what existed, but how I could make what doesn't. I, I read a quote of yours talking about your early years where you said, initially, I would make what I thought people should wear. But then I realized that I needed to make what people wanted which is sort of the opposite of what Steve Jobs used to say. He would say, you don't know, customers and consumers don't know what they want. They need to be told what they want. My job isn't to tell people what they should wear. Um, My job is to give them what they want, but not how they expect it. 
And I have to be sensitive to it and I have to interpret it and I have to give it to him in a way that doesn't exist in the competitive universe. But I, I need to listen better. And the best salesmen I learned early on were not the best speakers, they were the best listeners. So essentially, by 1984, you've got this brand, you're in Bloomingdale's, and I'm assuming that now your customers are mainly big department stores. Mainly in New York, are you starting to sell nationally by 1984? I'm selling nationally in 1982. I'm selling, hmm. I mean, they, I, wow. my first season I sold, I remember I sold Fred Siegel in, in uh, California. LA. I sold Bergdorf's in New York. I, we sold most of the better stores in the, in the country. You know, we worked very hard to, and Sam was a great salesman, and we worked very hard to get the product placed in, in the best stores. And um, the company, its first year in business, did $5 million. Wow. that's unbelievable. I think about a year in, Sam went off and started his own thing, or he, he left right. to go work for, I think, Esprit or something, right? Uh, correct. But you guys left on good terms. We left on good terms. So you, I guess, pretty soon, you know, early on and within the first two years, you branch out. You, you move beyond just women's shoes. You go into men's shoes. You go into women's handbags and leather goods, presumably because you thought there was demand for this, right? Yeah. I started with women's shoes. And I, and at the time, there's a company called Nine West that started about the same time that we did. Sure. And they were making a, and selling a lot more shoes quickly than we were. And I had a choice. I could, there was clearly an opportunity to make more shoes and sell them to more people. Or as opposed to the one I took, which is to sell similar accessories to the same person I was selling to. But I was trying to sell the coolest person on, in town, and there's only so many of them. And I knew that if I had to, if I was going to sell more shoes, I was invariably going to have to change the, my relationship with the customer, and I was going to have to be a little less cool and produce maybe them in a little more accessible manner. Hmm. Which means that you had to offer a lower price point. I would offer a little lower price point and they would be a little less extreme in their design and execution. And I could have done that. But instead I chose to keep the essence of the brand the way it was and create more products for the same person. And then not that much later, including the male complement to the women's shoes, which is myself. So I made shoes for me, shoes I wish I was there. Yeah. You know, I, what I often say is I put myself in the customer's shoes to try to get them to want to put themselves in mine. Let me ask you about men's shoes, right? Because it seems intuitive that it would be easier to design men's shoes because they're more straightforward. Is that true? It was for me, because I would put myself in my shoes. I, I would look at it, yeah. I could much more critically look at it and say, "Is this does this shoe need to exist in the world? I mean, e even in 1984, the designs of men's shoes, of course, are different than they are today, but, but there's some, some pretty substantial similarities, right? I mean, you had loafers, you had lace-ups, you had chukka boots and, and Chelsea boots. I mean, those existed in 1984. But fashion, men's fashion was just, you know, finding its stride at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, up until that point, men basically had suits, and then they had torn jeans and t-shirts and sneakers. That's what guys had. That's what every, hmm. every guy, we were like, we wore the same uniform. Right. And at that point, people were almost being encouraged and motivated to express themselves. And that, there was a, that vehicle was first really becoming accessible. One of the things that you would eventually become really well known for, in some ways as well known for as your shoes, was the cause of bringing attention to AIDS, the AIDS crisis. 
and I think in the mid-'80s, you were already really getting involved in this because one of your designers, um, David Brugnoli, was the first person that you knew who who's HIV positive and eventually died of AIDS. Was, was it David who inspired you to become involved in, in, in AIDS awareness? So David didn't because David didn't never really acknowledged to me that he had AIDS. He, he would never, hmm. he never even told me he had AIDS, but, wow. um, but I, I knew he did. And, and, um, and this was, and again, the mid eighties, I, I adored David. David actually was an interior designer is what it was. He actually designed the trailer. I think I had originally met him from Sam. I think Sam knew him. He designed the trailer for you in 1982. Yeah. He designed wow. the inside of the trailer wow. and he designed the inside of our showroom. And David was a gay man in New York. And that was a, you know, that wasn't something you wore on your sleeve mm. in those days. And what I would do at the beginning of every season is I would essentially, as I said, put myself in people's shoes and I would try, what is on people's minds? What are people thinking about? Yeah. And, and in many ways, I was, it was me. I was speaking to myself, you know, what was consuming me? What was on my mind? What was I You were with? thinking about AIDS and HIV. Well, HIV was consuming all of us. It was in everybody's minds, but very few people's yeah. lips at the time. And it was killing countless amount of, of mostly gay men in New York and San Francisco and big cities mm. and intravenous drug users. And then, um, but people were reluctant to talk about it because the stigma was so devastating. So I always sought to find ways to make what I was doing as meaningful as I could. And uh, mm. arguably, and I say this today, shoes are in and of themselves are not, nobody needs what we sell. If every shoe store in America closed its doors tomorrow at 12 o'clock, hardly an American would go barefoot for 15 years. Huh. And I knew early on, inherently, that it needed to be about more than how much money we were making. And HIV was affecting our industry in a disproportionate way. Hmm. And, um, and people weren't talking about it because they couldn't. So I decided to do a campaign. And, and also, at the time, contextually, I had all these initiatives happening. We had We Are the World, Hands Across America, right. Live Aid, World Aid, Farm Aid. And they were all about hunger. Hmm. So there was this looming black cloud and no one, people were were not comfortable talking about AIDS. Talking about AIDS. Sure. And to, people would want to be around you. People were afraid that they, that they would catch it. People were afraid. People in that time. Yeah. And you could potentially lose your job. You can lose your neighbors. You could lose your health insurance. You could lose everything that you valued. So it was a frightening time. And maybe because I wasn't a member of one of those at-risk communities, I wasn't as fearful as others. Hmm. And many women at the time were some of the biggest advocates. And I committed myself to it. And, and quickly, quickly, what I was doing was becoming meaningful to me. Hmm. And, and just to be clear, I mean, you launched an ad campaign uh, to raise awareness around AIDS. And, and, and I mean, for people to remember, that was like a really iconic ad, right? I mean, it, I mean, it showed up in all these magazines. Yeah. You had all these fashion models, and they were just really becoming icons at that time and being celebrated. So I asked Annie Leibowitz, I was the little, you know, up-and-coming designer, but I asked Annie if she would do it. And if she would take photographs. If she would, on a pro bono basis, I didn't really have any money, if she would help me do a campaign, do a photograph, 
And she agreed to do it. And then we reached out to all of the top models in the industry. Like the quote, thinking of the mid-80s, who were the top models at the time? At the time, Christy Brinkley was one of them. And Christy did it, by the way, and she was eight and a half months pregnant. And Christy hadn't been seen publicly in, I don't know, five months. But she allowed herself to be photographed um, for this ad, eight and a half months pregnant. As was Paulina and Beverly Johnson. Paulina Pereskova. Pereskova. I remember all these supermodels from the 80s. And Beverly Johnson and Joan Severance. And mm-hmm. Kelly Emberg. And so everybody said yes. And they would just be photographed, what? So they wearing? were, the, the concept, was, the campaign was, the message was for the future of our children. Right. And the notion was, we're talking about stigma. How do you talk about what nobody would speak about? And that was, there was this silence that was deafening. And then I had to decide what they were going to wear. And I figured I can't put them in my shoes because then, this campaign loses its purpose. It's going to look like it's, I'm self-serving it. And I didn't want to send that message to Annie. I didn't want to send it to the, the viewer or anybody else. So I said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to put my shoes. I'm not going to bring anybody else's so they'd be barefoot. And that, at the end of the day, turned out to be even a bigger statement. They were barefoot. They were not even wearing shoes. They were not wearing shoes. And, and, and how, so the idea was to take out ads and like publications and... So and- I wasn't sure how we were going to do it. I had a very small budget. And there was no such thing as pro bono advertising also in those days. So we got all the models to agree to do it. And then with children, and they, these were two groups that were not stigmatized. Everybody appreciated Beautiful Woman, and we loved all children. We didn't uh, have a problem with them until they had grew up and had opinions. So we had this beautiful photograph that Annie took of of all these women and the message was for the future of our children and then in small letters support AIDS research and 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 it didn't say Kenneth Cole anywhere on it it said Kenneth Cole under in a list of sponsors and I wow and so you really weren't like not this was like it was a gamble I wanted people to know I was behind it I wanted them to know I used my limited fragile resources for this but I didn't but I was very careful my role to a large degree was creative and bring conceptual and bringing everybody together and that campaign, in many ways, changed me. It changed the man, it changed the brand, and it changed my business in, in, a, in a profound way. Because all of a sudden, you became more focused on a social mission. We became important. What we were doing just became important. And it became meaningful. I'm looking at that ad. It's so cool, like, just seeing all these young faces, Christy Brinkley and Andy McDowell and Paulina Poroskov and all these kids. It's really cool. Yeah. So at the time, so I now had the message, I had now had the ad, and I ran, and I started calling all the magazines to see if anybody would run this for us, because I didn't have the budget to, and uh, and I had, everybody had done everything pro bono, and that wasn't really what you did in those days, that notion didn't really exist out there, so yeah, the models all did it, Annie did it, the studio was donated, hair and makeup I think was donated, I even had cars donated so people could pick people up, hmm. and um the magazines, I think the, mag- the message ran in 23 magazines, which was a lot And um, at the end. And then once it ran in a couple, we had a lot of other people calling for it, offering to run it for free. You also, I'm curious because this was sort of a foundational moment for your career and, and for you personally. Um, I mean, you would become the chair of AMFAR, uh, the, the Foundation for AIDS Research, um, which you helped raise hundreds of millions of dollars for. You would go on to be involved in other causes that are quote-unquote liberal or considered to be liberal, and you are openly liberal. Right. 
talk about that. I mean, I mean, is it is it? I mean, you know, some some companies and some business leaders kind of hide their politics. And I mean, not only do you kind of wear it on your sleeve, you're married into the Cuomo family. You're you're, you're you got married in 1987 to the sister of the current governor of New York and and daughter of the former governor of New York. I mean, did you ever think oh, maybe I shouldn't be political because it could hurt my brand, or was it like a non a non negotiable? But you know, guy, I I have been asked that question over the years, and mm-hmm. I and I tell people that I'm not political. Mm-hmm. Um, that my messages are not political messages; they're social messages or maybe human messages. Yeah. But but they're not social. They've been, they're social messages that have been politicized. But I don't talk about politics. Right. And uh, I mean, I have on one or two occasions because I couldn't help myself. But for the most part, I have made a very exerted effort for. 30 plus years, not to talk about things that I, or certainly in ways that I thought was political. Right. So your business is really kind of kind of growing in the, in the 80s, and really your distribution model is still through big retailers, right? Because this is still the heyday of department stores and where lots of people got their clothes. And, and, and I guess in, in like 94, you decide to actually make a change, to actually really focus on direct-to-consumer sales. What happened in, in 94? Was there like a catalyst that sort of inspired you to start to open up shops? What happened in 94 was the landscape changed. You know, when I started my business, there was maybe 70 or 80 department store chains in the United States. All wow. of a sudden, 10 years later, there's maybe 15 or 20. Consolidation. After consolidations and some bankruptcies. And then I woke up one day, and I think, if I recall, Campo was trying to buy federated department stores. And these are two stores that were in and of themselves leveraged and questionably solvent. And I said to myself that these guys are going to need to find economies because they don't exist today. And they can't sell any cheaper, so they're going to have to buy better, and what that's likely going to mean is they're going to take out the middleman, and I'm the middleman, and I didn't, I didn't like the way that felt. Why were you the middleman? I mean, you were selling your, your products to them. Yeah, but they could buy it directly from factories and, and then take out oh, I the see. middleman. And, and then no longer sell Kenneth Cole, just buy your shoes and not sell but your label. They'd your buy brand. similar shoes under different, on their own labels, and I'm not in business anymore, which was happening to some people. Hmm. So unless I, my brand was a destination, then I was had no reason to exist in those stores, and I wouldn't. I, I didn't. I believed. You didn't think that they would just continue to buy Kenneth Cole shoes and sell them? I didn't. I thought at a certain <laughs> point, they're going to eliminate the middlemen if they could. <laughs> so I needed to open stores. I needed to grow my presence, increase my marketing, and I also knew <laughs> that I couldn't fund that. I wasn't yeah. willing to fund that. So, but so, just to be clear, you had to, to fund that. The that is building stores. Building stores. I'm just trying to understand, though, because the value proposition was your designs. They couldn't steal your designs. But there were other designs. And if you don't see my designs, like a tree in the forest, I'm only as good as you know me to be. And if I'm not right. out there, then I don't exist. When we come back in just a moment, why Kenneth decides to take the company public and why he takes a big financial loss to go private again. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. 
Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness. The research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio Tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 1994, and Kenneth Cole decides he no longer wants to depend on selling his shoes through department stores. What he wants is a direct relationship with his customers. So how do I become present um, where I need to be, when I need to be, to the degree I need to be? You can't do that without controlling, ultimately, the distribution and having your own stores, at the, I felt, at that time. So you needed the cash. You need to, you needed money to, to, to make this happen. I needed the cash. I wasn't going to put myself in any more debt than I needed to be. And um, I decided by going public was the best way to do that. And invariably, when you go public and you ask the public for funding, there is a question everybody asks, which is use of proceeds. What are you going to do with the money? Yeah. And I had a very clear use of proceeds. You were going to expand like crazy. I was going to grow the business to as responsibly, as quickly and as responsibly as I knew how. I mean, it isn't because on your own, you've taken the company from a $5 million operation in your first year to a $85 million operation by 1994, which is impressive, but not enough because that's revenue. That's sales and revenue. That's not enough cash profit to fund the ambitions that you had. You had to go public. Right. Presumably, you raised a lot of money in that IPO. Now you got the cash to expand. So what what was the expansion plan? So the expansion plan was to open stores in important markets, which are aspirational markets mm-hmm. in Chicago and Los Angeles and Miami and Boston. And we systematically went down that road. And how, did, um, and how did that do? I mean, did people, I mean, by the, by the late 90s, were people flocking to Kenneth Cole stores? Well, I don't know if I'd use the word flocking, but we were, we were, these stores were all profitable and they were hmm. driving customer engagement and the brand was doing better wherever it existed. It did better in the department stores. and Because um, people would see the brick and mortar stores and that was like a an advertisement. Yeah, and then there was people, I remember having a conversation with Nordstrom at the time and they were a big customer and they were challenging the fact that we had all these stores. And I would show them quantifiably how every mall that we had a store, where they had a store, they did better with our shoes than Nordstrom's that did mm. not have a Kenneth Cole store. And I think because there's people that wanted to buy from Nordstrom or from Bloomingdale's or from Saks or wherever it was. And they're going to do that. And I just helped create a cachet and elevate the brand equation on their behalf. So everybody won. Do you know, it's very similar in a strange way to um, to the story of Foot Locker. I interviewed the former CEO of Foot Locker, Ken yeah, Hicks. I know Ken. And he told me that uh, whenever there was a Nike store 
opened up in a mall, actually, it increased Foot Locker's business. Right. Yeah, I believe that. It's very interesting. You would think the, the, the opposite. So um, so you have these stores. And by the way, we're, um, I mean, were you licensing your name at this point in the late 90s or not yet? I was. You were licensing your name to other products, apparel, sh- men's dress shirts, things like that? I, I don't I don't think I was doing apparel and dress shirts yet. I, I was doing, for sure, I had done women's handbags, and then I had done right. outerwear. And I think I had done men's ties and a couple of things. Right. But was your brand, I mean, your reputation was kind of aspirational, right? So you call it higher end or aspirational, what, what have you. But when you started to license your name, did that have an impact on, on how the brand was perceived? Because some of those products would show up at like, TJ Maxx. Well, it, it didn't initially because that wasn't the case initially. But I, I made a one of the biggest deals I had ever made as a company. We licensed women's wear to Liz Claiborne. <laughs> and they agreed to huge minimum sales levels, um, actually $250 million a year, which is crazy high numbers. That was and a guarantee that they would pay. Guaranteed by the, wow. fifth, by the fifth year of our relationship. That's a great deal. It is, but until you realize that they had to make the product more accessible, more accessibly priced, more accessibly fit, designed, so it, it fits a, a broader customer base, and uh, it's priced to appeal to a broader customer base, which is what they wanted to do at the time. Yeah. And I was, as a running a public company, I was blinded by demands and, and encouragement to drive sales. and uh, Get shareholders. And, they wanted to make money. That was what we signed up for as, uh, as, as chairman of public companies. I, I'm sensing a hint of regret in that deal with Liz Claiborne because it sounds like maybe it started to affect the reputation of the brand. It, it, you know, again, it's, it, was, it was a good short-term decision, but I, I didn't have appropriate foresight. And, and it, over time, it did dilute the brand value. Hmm. So it did take the product down market. And, and as a, a fashion company... You have to keep reinventing yourself, and um, yeah. and you need to re- maintain some level of aspiration. Otherwise, that's you'd have no re- reason to exist at a certain point. So um, the brand lost a little bit of its esteem um, when we did that. Meantime, you reach a, a market cap of a little more than half a billion dollars in two thousand six, and then in the subsequent years, we begin to hit the financial crisis. And I guess you decide at the time to step down as a CEO. Was it? Did you decide to step down because you felt like somebody could better manage the crisis, or or were you? Did you feel were you under pressure from shareholders? What What was the decision behind that? If I recall, I stepped down at the same time that I agreed to be the chairman of Amfar. Uh, I got you. Okay, I got. You. So it had nothing to do with the financial crisis. It would no. It wasn't the crisis, but I also felt I needed. The company needed somebody who could be a little bit more accessible. Focused, right. And yep. more focused and uh, could be all in all the time. So you, you had kind of stepped away from running the day-to-day operations for a few years. You had a, a different CEO, Jill Granoff. Yeah. And during that time, the revenue went down like 30% or, or more. And you decided to return to the CEO role, I think, around 2011. I mean... I think I know why, but did you feel like you had to come? I mean, it's like Howard Schultz came back to Starbucks after being away from it for so long. Did you feel like you had to re- regain control and, and try and bring it back to life? I felt I needed to fix the business. Hmm. 
and it wasn't working the way it was. We'd gotten too big. We were selling some of the wrong product to the wrong people. Huh. We were licensing to people maybe we shouldn't have been, had maybe the wrong product and doors it shouldn't have been in because invariably that's what the public markets will do to companies like ours. But, you know, I, I, what was happening is we as an executive team were spending most of our time talking about how we're going to talk about the results rather than trying to fi- how to fix them. You, you were and trying to figure out how to spin things. That's Yeah, that's what you do. And how do you make what you're doing sound as good as you can? And rather than how do you make it better? So being public is not you know, a desirable place to be unless you need the public markets mm. to finance and or run your business. And um, we needed to get smaller to get bigger. We needed to shrink the business, step back, and we couldn't do that as a public company, partially because of my personal visibility. Hmm. But as a private company, you can do those things. So we felt we needed to go private, and I needed to make that happen. So you had so you decided to come back to the company with the goal of taking your company private. And for anyone who doesn't understand this, and I, I don't fully understand it, it is very hard to take a company private once it's gone public, because you are essentially you got to buy back the shares from shareholders. It means you have to raise a lot of money to do that. And that's very challenging. I mean, I think, but how did you go about doing it? I, I don't remember exactly step by step, but we did what most people do. And we hired a law firm and um, we retained bank advisors. And uh, I spoke to a lot of people in the industry. And, you know, actually the process getting here is I, I spoke to all these very smart people that I knew. And, yeah. Uh, and many of them were friends, and I asked them, you know, if I totally tried to overhaul the business and put in a whole new board and restructure, and they all said to me, well, that's great, but you can't do that as a public company. And then they'd say, well, and by the way, why are you public? And hmm. I said, well, I, because I don't know how to not be public. Well, they said, well, just, it shouldn't be that hard. And they, you know, looking at your balance sheet. So, because I, I had always maintained and held on to a reasonable amount of the shares. So, right. We realized that upon analysis that I could do this without a venture capital firm because hmm. to do it with them, many will argue, it's harder, it's, it's harder to exist in that structure than it is as a public company. So you could do it with the shares that you already had? With the shares I had in, in traditional bank financing. Right. And, and from what I understand, you, you bought the company uh, back at 15 and a quarter per share, which uh, valued the company at like... 280 million which which was hundreds of millions of dollars less than it was at its peak so was there i mean i imagine there were some shareholders who were mad about this who who didn't want this to happen you know when we announced that we were going to do this we announced it at nine o'clock when the new york stock exchange opened we put out an announcement we had a class action suit filed and on our desk by 10 o'clock an hour later so you have this built-in process where, you know, these law firms just file suit and then they build the class afterwards. They start a class action suit and then they find the class and they yeah. sue you without knowing any of the facts because that's irrelevant and they will attach them later on as part of the process. You've been quoted as calling these lawyers who file these lawsuits extortionists. And you may not be wrong here, but but just just play devil's advocate for for a moment. I mean, could you make the argument that some shareholders were you know legitimately pissed off because they bought the shares for you know twenty dollars or you know eighteen dollars, and now they're going to lose 
three dollars a share. But if I if we offer fifteen dollars, right, and the stock at the time I think was thirteen, so we offer a premium of right. fifteen to twenty percent. Right. So there was a benefit everybody was realizing. And then the process was going on so long, we lowered our offer because the value of the company had gone down in this Just process. Just going down. And right. we had basically said to the marketplace, if you, and I had also said, I'm happy to do this and we're going to do a vote. And it's called the majority of the minority. So I won't even vote my shares because my shares were more than 50% of the hmm. outstanding vote. So my shares will not vote and the public shares will and if the majority of the minority shares win, then we the deal will not go through. And if it does, then it will, and we're happy, we'll accommodate that. And it did. At the end of the day, the lawsuit, the class action suit continued, and uh, over time, we prevailed. But it must have been costly and stressful. It was costly, but it's part of the process. It's part of yeah. the, the way you have no choice. You have to do that. And, uh, and uh, it was one of the best days of my professional life when, we, when, <laughs> when you went private when i went private so you go you take the company private and now the you're unshackled i guess all of a sudden you didn't have to think about short-term profits you could focus on the brand you could focus on long-term strategy and it was your company i think you you i think you still own about 80 percent of it well, at that time, I owned 80%. Now I own 100 We We, we had, I brought in some outside, um, some of these friends who, who were advisors and, and invited them to buy in at the same price that I did, and, that, and they formed an advisory board. And I should also mention that I think not long after that, um, you started to close down your stores, most of your stores. We systematically started to close the stores. And the prior management team had opened up a lot of outlet stores in places where we shouldn't have been. We had like 63 outlet stores across the U.S. And the model had changed and we should not have been in that business. And outlet stores, do outlet stores also kind of devalue a brand? I think they do, but also what changed in that period of time is the internet. You know, the outlet stores were a way to bring value to the customer, but the internet does it effortlessly. There's a whole marketplace that aggregates all the best existing product wherever it is and makes it available wherever there's supply to wherever there's demand. So the outlet model, in my mind anyway, and at that time, was obsolete, and I wanted to make the brand a better brand, and I, I felt we should not be in these stores. So we systematically went about closing them. You closed virtually all of your stores. I think today, today there's just what, I think just one or two? Is one one store? Yeah. Up until about six years ago, we had a hundred stores in the U.S. I mean, completely overhauled this model that you had. I mean, the reason you went public was to expand the stores and expand the brand with stores and brick and mortar. And and the reason we went private is to close them. But really, it's now you on the line. It's your personal right. financial situation. Because if if at this point. You, you own 100% of the company. If it goes bust, you're broke. You've assumed the risk. I'm assuming all the risk. Yes, that's correct. Which is comforting, truthfully, at some level. Because, hmm. you know, when you're driving somebody else's car, you drive more carefully because it's somebody else's car. But yep. you can be a hair more reckless if it's your own. <laughs> not, not, not that that's... Or you can take more risks. And, yeah. you know, you can explore kind of new paths that uh, others might not otherwise. You stepped down as CEO for the second time. Um, and then brought in Mark Schneider to run the company and the brand in 2015. 
Um, and, and together, you kind of focused on on a rebranding, like rebranding Kenneth Cole. What what was? Because you had a bunch of different things. You had Kenneth Cole reaction and 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 different parts of Kenneth Cole. What was the rebrand supposed to signal to consumers in 2015? Well, what we wanted to do is to. You can have a, a label, and that, that could be a lot of products that have your name on it. But if you can have a brand, you have to deliver a consistent point of view at every point of execution. And that's the, the hardest part about doing it, especially over as many years as we've been doing it. And yeah. it, it's, so we're on a lot of different products today. We licensed the brand in 20-some-odd products. And we've been, I've been a licensor for 25 years. And right. it's probably something we do relatively well. But I think the brand definitely is diluted in the process at some level because and you have to every day make very difficult decisions and uh every single business decision has financial implications right and it also has brand implications but right now we're running and operating the shoe business ourselves everything else until we were operating the clothing businesses too until recently and then we licensed them out so uh, but right now we're running shoes do you still think of your shoes in that same way, aspirational? I mean, I'm looking at the website. You know, there, this, these are not. This is not fast fashion. I mean, you're, you know, you have a pair of your women's heels are still 100. Some of them are 160, 170 dollars. So they're not, you know, designer prices, but they're, they're not the low end either. I, I, the goal is to. I don't think people buy price. Hmm. They buy value. And, and people learned a long time ago. You pay a dollar for something you never wear. It, you pay too much. So how do you? create a product that is that looks good that's comfortable that will look and feel good today as well as tonight and that's the challenge and and that's what we try to do every day i want to go back to the rebranding side right because you 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 had a very clear idea of what the brand was when you launched and it of course evolved because all brands evolve but when you rebranded who 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 did you want your customer to become who did you imagine your customer to be the goal was to, I, I, in my mind, I wanted it to be me. I wanted right. it to be, I wanted to want every one of those shoes and want to wear every one of those shoes. And I wanted it to be my wife and people who I think have great taste. And um, so was it realistic? Was it a little aspirational? Did I go a little far too fast? Maybe. But I still always believe in aiming higher, knowing that even if you come up a little short, you're, you're in a better place than you were. Are you still involved in designing the shoes? I am not as involved on a day-to-day basis, but I ultimately see everything and approve everything. What is a, a shoe that gets you excited right now that you guys are making? It's something that does everything for you, that checks all the boxes. You know, that today, post-COVID, I, I talk about a PC, what, what's the PC world, which is post-coronavirus and what are going to be our expectations and, and how, what's our appetite? I don't think there is a closet anywhere that today isn't full. So we have to give you a reason to make room in your closet, which is in and of itself. <laughs> and it's very attribute-driven. And um, right now I'm very focused on the most important new accessory, which is uh, one that nobody has in their closet right now and <laughs> everybody knows they need. And even if they have it, they know it could be better. The mask. It's the mask. I see it on your website. They're nice masks. So we're trying to make the perfect mask. It doesn't just look good. It has six layers of protection. It is temperature control. It's waterproof. So that is a kind of getting a lot of our resources put behind that right now. 
Um, one of the um, benefits of our show, certainly this year, has been as a source of comfort for our, our audience and our listeners who are, um, are running businesses. Because it's been a tough, tough year for pretty much everybody, unless you're unless you're running an online productivity software that everyone seems to be using remotely, right? right? And I have to imagine it's been a tough year for Kenneth Cole because it's been a tough year for the entire fashion and retail industry, full stop. Yeah. How are you? building resilience into your company this year? Because am I right? It's, it must be a, a slower year. It is a very slow, it's a very difficult um, year, Guy. And, you know, we're better off than most because a lot of our, the business model is built on, is on, on contractual relationships and licenses. Right. So there's, there's a sh- some level of assured income. But this isn't sustainable and we need to partner with our licensees and we do. And the shoe business, you know, struggles and to the degree is how do you variableize as much of your business as you can so you don't have all this you know massive overhead um, fortunately we had closed stores and fortunately we had made other decisions as well too to become a, a little bit leaner and our goal is to become as agile relevant and profitable those are the kind of the three boxes we look to check hmm. and we're trying to you know stay a step ahead Kenneth you um, earlier this year launched a new initiative called the mental health coalition to raise awareness about mental health and, and, and try to remove the stigma around it and help people get access to mental health services. First of all, um, we haven't talked about this. Have you ever um, been depressed or, or, or gone through mental, mental health challenges? You know, I, I don't think I do, and I don't think I did. I shouldn't say I don't think I did. It wasn't what kind of set me off down this path. But so many people in my life are living and struggling with this every day. And then I came to realize maybe I am as well in different ways. Hmm. I've been in a perpetual fog since COVID happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, WHO says that one in four people will live with mental health conditions in their lifetime. We say it's four in four. We say say it's Hmm. everybody. Because if it isn't you, it's somebody you love. It's somebody in your family, in your community, or in the workplace. But we're all living with it. In fact, today, post-COVID, I think it's five out of four people. I think it's also your pets. I think it's just so overwhelmed us. And I don't think people have a clue how devastating this is going to be for extensive periods of time. Yeah. But uh, so we, you know, we as a company were working with NAMI. I'll tell you just how this came about. My daughter also, Amanda, kind of encouraged this. And this is something that's very important to her. NAMI was, uh, has a... Uh, an initiative on um, anti stigma free companies, as we always mm. look to but do. What is that. NAMI? Sorry, I'm not familiar with NAMI. I'm sorry, National Alliance for Mental Illness. They're the okay. largest grassroots mental health um, service provider in the country. Got it. So they say to us, Will you help us with an anti stigma campaign like you did with HIV? And that, it, that stigma for mental health is as bad today as it was with HIV 20 years ago. So we work on a whole new narrative. To, you, I asked five psychiatrists. Just out of curiosity for a definition of depression, and I got five different answers. Hmm. And the, re- the reality is, none of them are empowering. Every one of them are diminishing. So, how do people talk about their circumstances? And you wonder why two thirds of the people with mental health issues are in, are in the shadows because they don't have a narrative they can resort to. So, let's create that and let's build the community. So, we go out and we reach out to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, Bring Change to Mind, Brain and Behavior Institute, Child Mind, Crisis Text Line, Jed Foundation, Mental Health America. Every one of them says we're all in. We built this massive coalition of mental health providers. 
And then we now set out to create this narrative. So it's, a, it's an inspiring journey that I've embarked upon, <clears throat> and it's become a big part of what I'm doing and an, an impact, I think, and a privilege that I have to be able to have such extraordinary organizations and individuals who've agreed to collaborate, to hold hands, and to, uh, to work together on this. Yeah. Ken, when you think about your journey, right, starting out, you know, kind of helping out your dad, and, and then you really had incredible success uh, with this business, not only financial success, but you, cultural impact. I mean, you became a name, a designer, talked about with Donna Karen and Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren and Kenneth Cole, all the same breath. Pretty amazing achievement alone. Well, you're, very, you're a very kind guy. Thank you. Do you attribute your success to how hard you worked and, and how smart you worked, or do you think more of it just happened because you got lucky? Well, my, my father used to say to me that the harder I work, the luckier I get. But I, I don't think it's just brute, you know, working hard. I think it's also having a sense of what people want and putting yourself in their shoes. And I, I work hard. I'm very emotionally vested in what I do, and I love it. And I guess the time comes that I don't, um, it'll be harder to keep it going. Are you comfortable calling yourself a designer now, after 35 years? I am. I still say I'm a shoe dog. That's an expression people in the shoe, in the shoe industry say, and I, I, I embrace it still. I mean, you are still a young man. you got a lot, a lot of life left in you, maybe you know, 30, 40 years. Who knows? Uh, with, with genetic engineering, maybe 50 or 100. <laughs> but at some point, you won't be around. Right. What do you think? should happen to Kenneth Cole? Do you see it as a 100-year brand? Do you see it? I, I, I don't know. I, I think if the brand can have a role today, if it can make an impact, and it has a reason to exist tomorrow, then so be it. The world is uh, it's very fragile, and people don't buy brands today, I don't believe. I think people recognize today that they are their own brands, and every day they wake up and they curate their own brands on their social media. And they don't just curate the content, they also curate the audience. Mm. So, and I'm just an accessory. I'm just, I co-brand with them and I hopefully they'll allow me to be part of their brand. So if my brand is a reason to exist for however long it does, then that's a privilege and it's something I'll forever be grateful for. We have to earn the right to exist. I think after 30 some odd years, I've earned the right to be considered, but every day we have to earn the right to be chosen. And that's all we can do. That's Kenneth Cole, the founder of Kenneth Cole. And by the way, remember how he registered Kenneth Cole as a film production company in the early days? And how they started to make a film called Birth of a Shoe Company? Well, you can actually see clips from that film on the company's YouTube page, where you will also notice a young, lanky, and bearded shoe salesman who happens to be Kenneth Cole. What kind of shoes are you wearing right now? I'm actually wearing Kenneth Cole sneakers. Nice. Assuming your shoe closet is only Kenneth Cole. It's not only Kenneth Cole, but it's, it's all not? that I admit to. Got it. Fair <laughs> enough. Because I, I think about my own shoe closet. I've got six pairs of Chukka boots. I'm sorry to hear that guy. I've had Kenneth Cole too, of course. I respect um, you no less. I'm wearing Birkenstocks right now, just so you know. Oh, you're pushing it. but. <laughs> <laughs> 
thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, it's at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by J.C. Howard with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Liz Metzger, Dareth Gales, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Farah Safari. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. If you need a break from the news, Pop Culture Happy Hour now has you covered five days a week. We're here to help you find new TV shows, movies, music, books, and video games to keep you company in these difficult times. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. NPR's How I Built This. Listen now.